reading from Revelation 19, verse 11 uh, to 21, 8. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the air, Come, gather together for a great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding a great chain. He seized the dragon, an ancient snake who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw on which, um, thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimonies about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and did not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They, had, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not yet come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they um, will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather for them in for the battle. In number, they are like sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beasts and false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, uh, and him who was seated on it, the earth and heavens, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, the dead were judged according to what 
um, they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead and Hades gave up, um, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of, uh, of life was thrown into that lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly and the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Thanks so much, Lauren. That was a short story of a reading, wasn't it? So, um, well done. So, um, here we are. We come, those of you who, who have been with us through this series, to the, uh, the great war at the culmination of the story of Revelation. Um, I think it's like the Battle of Hogwarts. I don't know because I'm not there yet. But, you know, it could be Marvel, Marvel's Endgame or whatever, where you've got all the forces of evil lining up on one side together against the forces of good. And it's this kind of this culmination of the whole story, the great battle at the end. And, and you've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with the armies of heaven here. And then you've got the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies together who come to wage war against him. And it's this epic scene and it's kind of, it's that moment in the film, you know, the, the music's really ramping up and, and you're expecting this great and this mighty battle. Think in, in Lord of the Rings of Helm's Deep as you just see that kind of orc army just stretch as far as the eye can see and, and, and those few good guys just standing there bracing themselves. And, and so you might expect a cinema, cinema epic battle to unfold here before our, our eyes. This close fought battle, lots of action, lots of close-ups and, and all of this. But of course it's a total non-event, isn't it? This is no close battle. This is no hard-fought hard thing where it hangs in the balance. It's not yin and yang. It's not good and evil counterbalancing each other. This is just a victory parade. That's all it is. It's a first-round knockout. And, you know, if you, if you were there at the fight, you would claim a refund. This is the culmination of the, the story of Revelation, indeed the culmination of the story of the world. And it's a victory parade for the Lamb, for Christ. And we see that in... You guessed it, seven visions. I don't know if you spotted that on the way through, but we've got this series of seven visions that, that Lauren just read to us that show seven different perspectives on this return and ultimate victory of Christ. So if, if you do have the Bible open, it's going to really help to see this. And I'm just going to run through this quite quickly. It's easy to spot. If you look at the paragraph markers in these red Bibles, they show it really well. Um, and, and 
John repeats, I saw, and I saw, I saw several times. So it's there, uh, the verse 11 of 19, he sees the first thing. Then down in verse 17, the next paragraph, and I saw. Then verse 19, then I saw. 20 chapter 1, another vision. 20 chapter 4, another vision. Then over to 20 chapter 11, and then finally 21 chapter 1. Seven visions that John sees, different perspectives on this final victory of Christ. And as these visions are layered up, they build up this picture uh, of Jesus' total defeat of all of his and all of our enemies. And so, and so as, it's not a series of visions. So it's not that John, these things are happening one after another, but he's, it's a series of visions that he sees of, of basically the same stuff going on. That's often what we've seen in Revelation, hasn't it? You're seeing different things from different angles, and they're unfolding side by side. Angles on the same events. So we're not to put these things together in a chronology like a sequence of events. But we're to see they're showing us angles on, on, on the same thing, the big picture. And in particular, it's worth just saying, we've said this earlier on, but it's worth saying at this point of the series, these visions aren't given so we can crack the code on what is going on in the world and predict when the end of the world is coming. It's less important about when these things happen. The really important thing is that they will happen. And you can bank on that. Now, let, let me just let's get our bearings first of all, and then I'm going to uh, kind of stand back, and we're going to see three things that, that these show us. But I just want to briefly map out these visions um, before before we dig in a bit more. So, the first vision, verse 11 of uh, chapter 19, is basically the vision of Christ, the conquering King. It's the picture of His second coming, as He comes in righteousness and with all authority. And that's followed by the second vision in verse 17. And basically, this one is, is very super short, but in pretty graphic and gross imagery, his victory is being announced by this angel who is standing in the sun. And, and, and the victory is that all those who are opposed to him will be overcome. And then that's followed in, in the, the third, uh, three, four, five, six visions from verse 19 of chapter 19 onwards. We see Christ's total and utter victory completed as he, as he defeats and he throws down all his enemies in perfect judgment, one after the other. So firstly, it's the beast and the false prophet in verse 20 of chapter 19, thrown down to lake of fire. Then in chapter 20, verse 10, it's Satan. And then finally, it's all who have rebelled against him, along with death and Hades in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 20. And so verses 3 to 6 are kind of seeing his complete and final victory, one after the other over these things, followed by, in 21, uh, the, the, the seventh vision, the renewal of all things that comes from this victory, the new heavens and the new earth, some verses that are very familiar to many of us. You see, not only does history belong to Christ, but so does the future. And so these perspectives on Christ's future victory are given so that we know how to live now in light of this coming future. It's a vision of the end, yes, but it's one that very much impacts life in the here and now. So that's the big idea. Seven angles, seven perspectives, seven visions of this victory of Christ. Here's the three things that I think we are to see and we are to respond to. Firstly, see the coming king. See the coming king. And it's this first vision, really, which is uh, in, in verse 11 of 19. This is the final main piece in that Revelation gallery. Remember, we, we said there's three big visions of Christ in the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The first one was the risen Christ standing amongst and with his people, the church, 
in chapter 1, this risen and ruling king uh, amongst and with his persecuted and suffering church. The second vision was in the middle, Revelation 4 and 5, and it's the vision of, of the throne room and of heaven and of, of the lamb at the center of the throne and the worship of heaven and the, the, the lamb who rules over all of history. And then here is our third and final major revelation of Christ, which dominates this last section of the book. And it's the, a, a vision of the good king who returns in glory, who returns in righteousness and power and who brings heaven to earth with him who comes in justice and righteousness. This is a vision of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that will end history as we know it. Now imagine, with me if you will, imagine a good king back in the old days who's been away from his kingdom on his travels. For whatever reason, he's been out there and away for a period of time. And he returns to his kingdom and he finds that things are not as he would have them be. They're not as he would wish. Rebels have claimed his throne. Evil and injustice is running rife through his kingdom. His people are suffering greatly under the oppression of it. And his, king, and his intentions for his kingdom are not being realized. And a good king who returns to a kingdom there will come and he will set things right. He will claim his throne again. He will bring justice. He will punish those who have been doing evil. He will restore good and flourishing. He'll uplift the poor and needy. He'll bring his kingdom back to where he wants his kingdom to be, to flourishing and life. This is the vision that we have of the return of Christ. This is the king coming back to bring back all that he intends. See, we shouldn't miss that he is a good king. Do you see his name here? He is called Faithful and True. That's a name that captures his nature, Faithful and True. He rides on this great white horse, white being a color that represents purity and righteousness. There's no shadow with him. He's he's perfectly good in every way. His eyes, we read, are blazing fire. We've seen that already, haven't we? Revelation 1. His perfect wisdom, his righteous judgment, nothing hidden or missed from him. In fact, we're told a few times his name. He's also called the Word of God, and he's called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's tattooed up his leg. And yet we're told that he has his name written that no one knows but he himself. You see, for all that is revealed of Christ, for all of his goodness and his beauty that we can see, and that has been shown to us, there's so much more to be shown. There's so much more to learn and to one day know. This is the good and perfect king who one day will ride out through the world again, back to his kingdom in truth and justice. Tell me that isn't good news. But when he does, he comes in goodness, yes, but he also comes in great power, doesn't he? See, when the word of God first came to earth, John wrote down, um, John who sees this vision, he wrote down something uh, about his coming and he said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as John writes the first, uh, around the first coming of Jesus, he writes a story of, of weakness and veiled glory and servant work that culminates in him hanging out to die on a cross before his final resurrection. But when the word of God comes again next time, He's going to come in risen and reigning humanity. His glory and greatness won't be veiled, but it'll be plain for all to see. And his power no one will doubt, and his victory will be complete. 
See, John sees here that he has many crowns on his head and he has this sharp sword coming from his mouth and he's got the armies of heaven following in his way. This is the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the conquering king who comes to rule the, iron, uh, rule the nations with an iron scepter. The one who comes to make the nations his inheritance, the, end of, the ends of the earth his possession. Here he is to renew his kingdom once more. And so he's riding out here in his second coming on a world where millions of innocent babies have been aborted, where child soldiers are groomed, where women fear their safety as they walk the streets, where where disease just runs ravage through the world and just ruins people's lives, where families and homes have been ripped apart, where injustice so often reigns, where death reigns over everything, and where people politely and quietly just live their lives lives that he gives them and he sustains for them each moment with no respect, no love, no acknowledgement of him. See, this is the king riding out on a world where he, when he first came, was hung out to die on the cross by people who he made. And here he comes to put an end to all that is wrong, to put a stop to those things. And so that's why, firstly, the false, uh, the false prophet and the beast in, in verse 20 of chapter 19, and Satan, as I said, in chapter 20. And finally, all of those who have just decided that life is better without the God who made them and loves them are thrown here, we see, into this lake of fire. One after the other, each of those who've made themselves his enemies, those who have elevated themselves and put their agenda and their ideas and their ideologies before him, the nations and the kings on the earth and the powers that be in the world that have risen up against him and his anointed, those who have lived independent lives from God and rebelled against his rightful claim over them. Well, they're all brought to nothing. They're all found wanting before the truth of God's word and this Messiah as he comes and strikes them with the sword of God in his mouth. Now, this is what... Revelation caused the second death. You see, it's important for us to talk about this because there is a death that is much greater, much more significant and much more terrible than our physical death. And it is this second death. And we're warned of it here. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is an eternal death under the just punishment of God. It's the full, final and irreversible separation of people from the God who made them in his image and loves them. There is no way back from this death. You see, because there is no place in this king's kingdom for evil and rebellion anymore and and no place for the destruction that it brings in his world. And so that's why this sixth vision, starting in verse 11 of chapter 20, is a vision of the final judgment. Before this great white throne of God, it's... It's a judgment that is so great that as we read of it, the the physical world just kind of shrinks back and and, and almost disappears, flees before him. As that all that is left is the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality of who we are before God. As one by one, all people, great and small, are brought before him, before the throne. And in this judgment, people are judged according to what's recorded in these books. Presumably, it's the books that record pretty much everything, every single thought and action and word and deed of every single person. But there's only one book that really matters. 
And that's the Lamb's Book of Life. It's, it's the book with the names written of the people that the Lamb has purchased for God from every people, language, tribe, and nation. Anyone whose name is not in that book and therefore uh, is, is not saved from the second death is thrown into the lake of fire. Christ will purge his world of all evil in the end. He will. Here in the third last chapter of the Bible, he is undoing and overcoming what happened in the third chapter of the Bible. The place where evil and rebellion and sin came into this world as an invasion from outside. He is now casting it off, sorting it out. The sin and evil and rebellion that has invaded and ruined the world will be done away with. This is the work of a good and a perfect king. This is the work of one who is faithful and true. This is the work of one whose love for his world is so great. So great. This is the work of the king of glory. You see, there isn't a great spiritual battle at the end. There's just a final victory. The great spiritual battle is now. The fight is happening over the souls of men and women, even this morning. Even as you hear these words, there's warfare over your soul. And so that's why we turn to this second thing we need to see. See, that's, that's us seeing the coming king. Here's the second thing. See how you reign with him. Now, this is true to you if you're a Christian. See how you reign with him. Here we're going to focus on these uh, fourth and fifth visions in, in, in the middle of chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. And they're so helpful because what they do for us is they show you now, if you're a Christian, how you can relate to these future events in the here and now. Okay? Well, these are among uh, some of the more controversial verses in the Bible. And uh, there's a variety of ways that people understand them. They refer to this uh, period about five times, this period of a thousand years, uh, which people uh, know as the millennium. And listen, some of you have never heard it, and, uh, and, and that's probably better that way. Others like nothing more than debating it at great length whenever you possibly get the opportunity to do so. Um, let's just acknowledge it's not the most important part of Christian belief, uh, what we do or don't think about this thing called the millennium. But how we understand it does impact how we live life here and now. So it's worth thinking about it. So some people think of it as this future golden age coming for the church. And so they've got really high expectations of what life should look like for Christians in the church today. Others uh, think of this millennium as uh, something that's coming, uh, the good times that are coming after Christ returns. So they've got really low expectations of what life will look like for Christians in the church in the here and now. And everything's pretty doom and gloom until Christ returns. I think the best understanding, which fits with lots of what we've uh, seen in Revelation, not to mention the rest of the Bible, and certainly fits with our experience, is the millennium is right here and right now. We are living it. In, in these visions, uh, in, in the fourth and the fifth visions at the beginning of chapter 20, what we get is the backstory of life in the world being filled in from the perspective of the end of Christ's final victory. So it's like a flashback from Christ's victory back to what it's like in the here and now. Now, uh, let, let's just look at it briefly and, 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 and see what it says. As with other numbers in, the, uh, in, in Revelation, as we've seen, 
they're, they're symbols, not statistics. So um, th a thousand years isn't a kind of literal amount of time, but it's a, it just means a really long time, basically. It's, it's, it's that simple. Uh, and during this really long time, two things happen. The fourth vision, this is what happens. Satan, who is the deceiver, is bound and imprisoned in the abyss. He's thrown down. So Satan goes down, and in the fifth vision, the second thing that happens in this millennium is the people of God are raised up. The people of God share in the first resurrection, and they're raised up to heaven with Christ, where, verse 4, they sit on thrones and reign with him. And then at the end of this period, uh, in verse 7, this really long time, the restraints on Satan are to some extent released. He's set free for a short period of time, and he goes out to deceive the nations across the earth and to gather the nations for this great last battle against God's city and the people he loves. But we know the outcome of that, don't we? Because it is his, actually his, uh, his last stand. He thinks it's his final flurry of glory and all the rest, and all it is is his defeat and his final destruction. Now, not only does this reflect and interpret for us our experience, but it also tells us, if you're a Christian, how to live in the here and now in light of what is coming. How to live faithfully for the coming king. You see, Satan attacks, and the way he attacks is by trying to deceive. But still, Christ reigns, and we reign with him. You see, Christ is on the throne this morning, and we too are on mini thrones, if you're a Christian. Just picture that in your mind. Close your eyes for a minute if you want. But like, picture heaven however you do. And right now, spiritually speaking, you're sat in heaven next to Jesus, sat on a throne. Ruling with him. And yet Satan attacks by deceiving, verses 3 and 8. And he will again and again, the father of lies, he hides or he distorts the truth. He, he convinces people that a, a lie is the truth and keeps people from the, the real truth. He blinds eyes and hearts to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But he is chained and he is bound. It's like he's on a leash. So he's doing it a bit, but only a little bit. Or only so far. He's limited in the amount of destruction he can cause by his decep deceptions. Jesus, when he was one time just describing to some of his friends what his life mission was about and what he was doing, he described it in these terms. He said, I'm like a strong man and I've come to overpower and, and bind up Satan. And Jesus did that through his cross and his resurrection. He bound up Satan. He diffused the power of his deceit. He disarmed him from actually having anything to come against God's people. His lies uh, were once and all proved false and worthless. Because no, our sins no longer will stand against us because Christ has died for them. He showed that, yes, God is good, actually, in all things. And yes, God does love his people and he's shown it and demonstrated it. And though Satan, you can't take God down. And though Satan, your rebellion won't last forever. And yes, love does overcome hate and, and good does triumph over evil. One after the other, Satan's deceit and his lies were being bound up by Christ in all that he achieved on the cross. And yet Satan's tricksy, so he's still at his work today. He's bound and he's chained, but yeah, he's still trying to go out and deceive. So God's word says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. People are blind to who Christ is. 
Some are, but not all. For it also promises that God makes his light shine in people's hearts to give them the knowledge of his glory displayed displayed in Christ. And so people from every language and people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue today will and are believing in Jesus as Lord. Satan's deception and lies have not worked on all people. They see the truth of who he is. And so that means that this is how we reign with Christ. Through our willingness to suffer for the gospel. For us holding out the good news of Jesus to those around us. See, today Satan is bound as the gospel is preached, as God's word is read. Today Satan is bound as, as, uh, as the gospel is believed in, in your heart and lived out in your life. Today Satan is bound as, as men, women, boys and girls come to see and to know the glory of Jesus Christ. Right now, Jesus is, through his church, storming hell. And the gates of hell will not prevail against him. He is rescuing people and bringing them to himself. He is building his church. And so every time someone crosses a national or a cultural border with a mission mindset, they might take the love and the good news of Christ to other people. And every time a new gospel-believing and preaching church is planted in our city, and every time you resist Satan's deceptive lies whispered in your ear for the truth of Christ, any time you share Jesus in some way with a friend or a colleague or a family member, every time a Christmas flyer goes through the door of someone in our local community, inviting them along to something where they'll hear about Jesus, Satan is and the church is doing its job of reigning with Christ this is how we reign and as we reign each day we get one step closer to the final victory that is coming now listen let's just be clear lest we get too kind of triumphalistic about all of this we reign in the likeness of Jesus' reign that's why it's about suffering about the gospel where is Jesus' reign won and revealed? What's in his naked and bruised and beaten and bloodied body hanging out to die on a Roman cross, isn't it? Christ does not reign through political power, through coercion, through wealth and worldly fame, but he reigns through a sacrificial death on a cross. That opened up the fountain of life for people that paid for our sins. He reigns as one who came to, to serve by seeking and saving the lost. He reigns by going under the radar and building his kingdom in unnoticed and unglamorous ways with people that the world has long since left behind. So listen, guys, we reign, not by dominating, not by worldly power, not by wealth and greatness and and just being the best, but we reign by holding on to Christ as our only hope in life and death. We reign by our suffering for the sake of the gospel. We reign by looking weak in the eyes of the world, flying under the radar, but seeing the kingdom of God advance as here and now in central Birmingham, people do come to know and to experience and to love Jesus and experience life in him. We need to have our right expectations of what it looks like to reign in life. 
It's a rain that is hidden from the natural eye, but it's a spiritual reality that is lived and experienced by faith. And that's why we have a vision to show us it. Because we can't see it with our physical eyes. We need to have a vision from heaven. Look, family of God, we need to not lose our nerve. Hold fast. See these spiritual realities. Our king is coming. He is coming. And right now we are raised up to this high station so far above what we deserve and we are reigning with Christ in the world and we triumph by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Here's the third thing that we need to see from these visions and that is the renewal of all things. So I've said already that the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, see what happens is that through God's judgment, he refines and so he renews his world. For as much as the presence of this holy God as a consuming fire is terrifying for those who've rejected him, for those who've put their faith in him and have received the gift of new life, it is a refining fire that brings renewal, that brings life, that brings hope, that brings flourishing. So as God comes in judgment, the earth and the heavens flee in his holy presence as judge. But then in chapter 21, John sees a new heaven and a new earth in its place. You see, God's not going to throw out this world. He's not done with it and put it in a bin. But he's going to, I don't know, upcycle it is probably the best idea I can think of. He's going to give it a new lease of life. He's going to restore and renew it and and bring new beautiful things out of it. Uh, This vision in in chapter 21 is, is heaven coming down to earth. Everything made new again. And, and, and these, these verses are so familiar to so many of us, but let's just keep them in this context of what's going on. At this time, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for that old order of things will have passed away. Do you know how close you have to get to someone to wipe a tear from their eye? Jesus, this King Jesus, this awesome Jesus, that's what he's going to do for you if you're his. He's going to wipe the tears from our eyes. One day, God is going to say, it is done. And that it is done is the completion and the fulfillment of the cry that Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished as he breathed his last. And when God says it is done, at last it will all be made new. At last God will forever be with his people. And at last Christ's rule and reign will be seen by all and denied by none. And he will give water to the thirsty, water from the the springs of life. And we will reign forevermore in his world and to his glory. You see, not only is there a death that is greater than the death that we can experience on this earth, But there is a life that is far greater than the life that we can experience on this earth. And this is a little vision of this eternal life for us. That is what God is going to do in the world at the end. He'll renew all things and make all things new by refining like gold in the fire. Brothers and sisters, what he will one day do in the cosmos, 
today he is doing in your heart and in your life. So I want to close. This, this series, we're thinking about what it looks like to live faithfully for the coming king. And today we've had such a clear vision of his coming and his return. There is no place in this king's kingdom for evil to remain. And by his Holy Spirit, God is a refining presence in your life, preparing you for this kingdom that is coming. Of course it's painful. Of course it's painful. But he refines so that he can bring new life and flourishing. He refines so that he renews. He wounds so that he heals. He inflicts, but he restores. And listen, see the way that the world is going. It doesn't look like it as you live your life out there in the week. It doesn't look like it to me as I just go about my life in the week. These are spiritual realities that need to be revealed to us by God. See that the way the world is going. It's going to a place where it's going to be refined, all evil gone, and it's going to be renewed. And it's going to be glorious and it's going to be great. And so let's push forward in that direction together. Let's live the life of tomorrow today. And let's wait patiently and expectantly for our king to return. Let me pray for us as we do that. Lord Jesus, you are the king of glory. You are great and powerful and mighty and awesome. And we stand in awe of you. And yet you're also good. You're a servant. You are humble. You're full of love and grace and forgiveness and patience and forbearance and kindness. And just week by week, we just try and we, we can't get these things together as we grapple with you, but you, you are great. And we, and we see these things in your first coming to, to take the rap for us and to die on the cross. And we see these things in your second coming to finish what you have started, to restore and renew all things. Lord, where you are doing a refining and a renewing work in our lives today, would you help us to submit? Would you help us to allow that work to happen and not run and not flee? And would you please bring the life for which you have destined and purposed us, the life that you want for us? Lord, if there's any today who are not ready to stand before you and that eternal second death hangs over them. Lord, please, would you rescue and save them? Would they see in their heart the light of the glory of Christ that he is our only hope in life and death? And bring them into your kingdom, I pray. Pray all these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.